Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you guys had a great uh, few days with family and friends. Relax a little bit, eat a little bit, and uh, connect. Um, as Jeff mentioned, we are uh, working our way through 1 Corinthians, and we're actually finishing our first segment of the book. And the book kind of lays out in such a way where there's a lot of topics and subjects, issues or whatever that Paul addresses, and it, it makes it easy to, to kind of put it into mini-series. And so we've been in this first one we called Wedge, and the idea was around some things that Paul is addressing related to division in the Corinthian church. And as we've been seeing, there's a lot of causes for that division, and we're going to get a whole different one today. But uh, there's all of these things that really are getting in the way of the, the people in Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, their relationship with God and their relationship with each other, which also affects their relationship to the mission. They're not able to effectively do that. And so uh, we're wrapping up today with this series called Wedge, and I want to start by introducing you to a word. If you've been around here for a while, I know you've heard me say it. Um, maybe you've said it to one another, but if you haven't, you get to learn a new word today. That's pretty cool. So here it is. I want you to say it with me. Yanyo. Let me hear it. Yanyo. Okay. It's in your outline. It comes right out of this text. It's a little acrostic. You are not your own. You are not your own. Few phrases speak more comprehensively to a reality that every Christian has to keep in mind as they're making their way through life. Yanyo, you are not your own. You're not self-existent. You're not self-sufficient. You are not ultimately supreme, but you answer to one who is. So do I. The world, the flesh, and the devil would like you and I to believe that we are our own. That we know what's best, and it's best if we just do what we please. It's, it's a concept of worldly freedom. That's what we're going to look at today. Maybe that's the wedge that's getting in the way of God's activity in this church in Corinth. And I think that we can probably relate as well. The truth is, worldly freedom is actually the worst kind of captivity. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But worldly freedom captivates us with cheap pleasures and then blinds us to the things that we actually need, right? We get distracted. Worldly freedom also elevates our ego with perceived control and I'm sure that you can relate. We're always trying to manage control, right? As if we can, but it's always just out of reach. It's hard to keep things under control. Uh, I love what Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God. Even the best of people hide from themselves what is within. An an enormous capacity for egotism, self-absorption, and regard for their own interests over those of all others. That is worldly freedom at its best and its worst. Now what's interesting is the allure of that freedom can actually cause God's people to distort God's word and then begin to justify their own departure from God's design, living in captivity, 
it happens, it has happened all the way along, and I think that's what we get here in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. So let me uh, read what Paul writes in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, it's a strange kind of construction of a sentence. I'm just going to stop there for a moment. Um, commentators come a lot of different angles at this to kind of say who's, who's speaking and is it multiple people and who are they talking to and, and all that kind of thing. I think the best way to take this sentence is as a dialogue between Paul and the Corinthian church. And it's a sense, it's a back and forth. So uh, the Corinthian church is making a claim and Paul is responding to that claim. The issue is around freedom. They're saying all things are lawful for me. Now, where did they get that idea? Well, you, you probably heard us talk about a letter that had been written from Paul to the Corinthian church. We no longer have that letter. We just know that it was exchanged. And we know that Paul was very likely teaching a number of things, probably something related to freedom in that letter, or they would not be responding this way. So something about what Paul taught about freedom has been distorted by the Corinthian church so that they can justify their lawlessness. Here's an example of what they might have come up with. This is actually out of the book of Galatians, but I, I bet it works. Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now here is a good principle for Bible study methods. If you take a sentence and you rip it out of its context, it literally can say anything that you want it to say. So if we take that sentence all by itself out of the context of Galatians, it sounds like Christ came to give us freedom. So don't ever, ever submit to anybody. You just do what you want to do. Be free. See how I did that? That's crazy. But I, that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were taking this statement about freedom and twisting it. What Paul was talking about was they were free from the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. God had given a law to his people. They were to follow that law, and that's how they were to live in relationship with him. But in the New Testament, after the resurrection of Christ, they were set free from the law. That doesn't mean they were given absolute freedom. There was still an expectation that God's people would live God's way, that they would fall in line with what he says. What's, what's our word again for the day? Yanyo, you are not your own. You, you don't get to just do what you please. You are free from the law outlined in the Old Testament, but you're not free to act independently of the law giver. Here's a statement in your outline that might help kind of summarize this. Spiritual freedom is about enablement, not autonomy. Spiritual freedom is about enablement, not autonomy. See, they took the idea of freedom as an ability to step outside of God's authority and just literally do whatever they want to. What Paul wanted them to understand is the freedom that you have been given is actually enablement to do what God wants you to do. So you are now free to please God and find pleasure in pleasing God. 
If we go back to that statement in Galatians, Paul said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Down in verse 13, he says, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He would say, that's worldly freedom. That's self-serving freedom. That's freedom that you want to have apart from the authority of God. He said, instead, through love, serve one another. That's the intention of the freedom that Christ has given us. So now let me go back to this dialogue that Paul was having with the Corinthians. They said, all things are lawful for me, which means I'm free to do as I please. But Paul responds, not all things are helpful, which is to say that you might have liberty in some areas. There may actually be something that you could do that you are actually free to do. But what you ought to be asking is, is this thing beneficial? Is it helpful? Does it help me and does it help the people around me? That's the standard for what is right, not simply what I think. Secondly, they say again, all things are lawful for me. And Paul's response, I will not be dominated by anything. So another criteria that we want to take into consideration when we're looking at options and we're thinking about whether or not we ought to do something, we ought to ask, is this thing, does it have mastery over my life that rivals the mastery that Jesus ought to have and his word? If so, then I'm out of bounds. I'm not living in spiritual freedom. I'm pursuing worldly freedom. Interesting, Peter, uh, in his letter, the second letter, Second Peter, he addresses false teaching. And I want you to hear what he exposes here from these false teachers. This is Second Peter 2, 18 and 19. For speaking loud boasts of folly... They, that is the false teachers, entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That's a good one to underline. If there's anything in your life that is either not helpful or mastery over you, and you do it anyway, it's to that thing that you're enslaved. You're not free. You're actually captive to that thing. Chuck Swindoll says, when believers don't use their freedom to serve God, they unwittingly serve sin. In the case of the Corinthian Christians, they borrowed from Greek philosophy in their city in Corinth and surrounding areas to justify immorality. We're going to talk about what that is, but let me read verse 13. And this sort of works out in a similar dialogue kind of way as verse 12. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. That's the statement of the Corinthians. Then Paul responds, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. I'm not sure why he brought that up, but we'll find out in just a moment. So the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What Paul is speaking to here is just classic Greek dualism. 
It was a basic framework of understanding about the human condition which separated the visible from the invisible, the spiritual from the material. And what the folks did in that day was they attached goodness to that which was immaterial or invisible. And they would have pointed particularly to the mind and the spirit or the soul, that which was unseen. Then they relegated the physical, the body, the material, to all that was evil, all that was bad. One, one ancient author actually called our bodies the tomb of the spirit. So it's like, can't wait to get rid of that. So you can see the, the incredible distinction that uh, those folks made between those two deals. So Paul is doing two things here. He's trying to elevate their view of their physical bodies. We'll find out why in just a moment. He's also establishing a sexual ethic based upon the significance of their bodies to the Lord. So he's going to do both of those things. And as I mentioned sexual immorality and sexual ethic, I thought, I, I didn't know if we should kind of say this sermon is M for mature. or you know, I don't know how comfortable you might be with that. But I, I want to say... Um, I don't know how you talked about this stuff or heard about this stuff in your home, and I don't know how you talk about it now. I certainly know how our culture talks about the whole area of physical intimacy. And honestly, it's a real shame because it's, it's often within the church either kind of put over here as like this little secret that we don't ever talk about and it's just bad, 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 bad until you get married. Or it's like, you know what? Everybody's doing it. <laughs> So we don't even need to talk about it. Just kind of do whatever you want to do. Well, the scriptures have a lot to say about our understanding in this area of sexual intimacy. So we ought to be able to talk about it. And we ought to have a healthy, robust perspective about God's design in this area. So are you with me? Can we do that? Let's jump into this. Um, let me summarize that second passage, verses 13 and 14, with this statement. The significance of our bodies is far greater than the satisfaction of our physical appetites. The significance of our bodies is far greater than the satisfaction of our physical uh, appetites. So, again, with that classic dualism kind of perspective, the early Corinthian believers were basically treating sexual stuff in the same way that they would treat any other kind of physical uh, behavior, biology, physiology. If we go back to that uh, statement, the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, what they meant to say but didn't say is sex is for the body and the body is for sex. That's why Paul addresses sexual immorality right after that. He goes, oh, so what you're trying to say is you can do whatever you want to with your body, eat, drink, sex, whatever. It's all good because it's all material. And their thinking was, you know, when I'm hungry, I go get something to eat. When I'm thirsty, I go get something to drink. And when I feel sexual desire, I just go find somebody. Literally. That's how they had begun to think about this area of their lives. God obviously puts it in a completely different category. He attaches profound significance to this part of healthy biblical 
relationships. Um, sex is more than just a, a mechanism. Um, it's a sacred gift full of purpose and primarily that of glorifying God. Now, the fact that sex is pleasurable and reproductive doesn't limit it to a utilitarian device. It's not just, again, it's not just like eating and drinking. It's far more than that. Its symbolic and spiritual significance don't allow us to have a low view of it or our bodies. So let's think about what does God say about physical intimacy. Well, we know that it is so important to God that he would confine it to a very specific, particular relationship or kind of relationship. We know that relationship as marriage, a covenant between one man and one woman that lasts till death do us part. That is the one and only context for this sacred gift of physical intimacy that God has given his people. So anything outside of that singular relationship is a distortion or a perversion of God's sacred gift. And he calls it immorality. So what is immorality? What does that mean? That's just a contradiction or a departure from the relational design of God's creation. So Paul points back to Genesis 2.24. talks about the two becoming one flesh. We're going to see that in a moment. So there is this design that God intends within a particular context, and he's saying you don't have freedom to redefine that context. What you do have freedom to do is to engage it with a full heart for the purpose of honoring the one who gave the gift to begin with. Now, what does Paul mean when he says the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body? If the body isn't for sexual immorality but is for the Lord, what does that mean? So I want to go back to our word, yanyo, you are not your own. So this body that God has given you, he has intentions for how you use it how you relate with it. First of all, God gave you a body to somehow reflect his image. We're all called image bearers in the creation narrative of uh, Genesis 1 and 2. So we're given it to reflect his image. We're also given a body to accomplish his purposes. So we know that that's God's intention for us having a body. And then we're, we're going to get to it in 1 Corinthians 10, but... Paul says there, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So certainly, eating and drinking can glorify God, but apparently sexual intimacy can as well. And, and I, I, I should also say that we often grow up and perhaps even perpetuate the idea that um, sex is dirty or nasty or whatever and all to be avoided and that under all circumstances. I mean, it's just, we color it so darkly for the purpose of protecting young and singles and, and all that rather than painting this amazing picture of what a precious, glorious gift it is. It's a good thing. And, and if we really understand its goodness, then we're more willing to wait for the appropriate context in which to enjoy it. 
See how that works? We just come at it the other way. So Paul is saying you can glorify God with that. And it's in that sense that the body is for the Lord. It accomplishes his purposes. But also, the Lord is for the body. Now, what does that mean? I actually love thinking about this. I probably ought to think about it a lot more than I do. But I want you to think about Christ as a provision. Certainly, he presents himself that way. But when you think about the Lord being for the body, I want you to think very particularly about how Jesus describes himself in the Gospel of John. Do you remember all the I am statements? Those really aren't only intended to describe who Jesus is. They also reveal what we need him to be. Think about these titles. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That sounds pretty significant. The light of the world. The door of the sheep. The good shepherd the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you have no life at all. You cannot bear fruit. You cannot be who God intended you to be. Apart from me, Jesus says. The Lord is for the body. We desperately need him. And do you see how that easily contradicts the whole idea of worldly freedom and the pursuit of autonomy. That's a lifeless path. That's a path apart from God's intention. The greater that we grasp these truths about the body being for the Lord and the Lord for the body, the less we will be enticed by the empty promises of worldly freedom. We'll be able to say no because those have no allure. Now, if that weren't enough, Paul does mention the resurrection. He doesn't really go into any explanation here. All of chapter 15, so we're going to get there. It'll be sometime next year. But all of chapter 15 is about the significance of the resurrection. But he inserts it here just again to conflict or correct the, the Greek perspective that the body is worthless. And he's saying, if it were worthless, why in the world would God raise it up at the end of all time and preserve it for all of eternity. It must be of some great importance to God if he is to do that. So let's keep moving. Beginning in verse 15, Paul now gets down to business. He addresses the use of cultic prostitution. I know that's kind of like, whoa, like we don't do that a lot around here, do we? Um, that's not a real common practice in uh, the U.S. of A., but I do want you to, before I get into this, I, I do want you to sort of think more broadly. Um, sexual immorality in our country, I'm, I feel like, duh. Uh, I, I mean, it is rampant, isn't it? In, in every form. Pornography, advertising, we're reading in the news almost on a weekly basis of abuse. and You know, it's just, it's everywhere. It has saturated our culture. And that is what worldly freedom, as it relates to that area, has produced. So all the more reason for us to get God's perspective. And Paul is going to speak very directly to a practice that the Corinthians were involved with, and that was cultic prostitution. In Corinth, you know that was a wild and crazy city. They had a temple 
that was dedicated to Aphrodite. They had a thousand male and female prostitutes, and part of their worship practice was to go to the temple and have sex. So somehow, obviously, they got off track. The Corinthians thought, so somehow I can worship God, follow him, be his child, be forgiven, and I can go hang out at the temple of Aphrodite. So Paul's going to speak to that. He says this in verse 15. Do you not know, which is this is a, you must know. (laughs) Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul again pointing back to Genesis 2.24, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Christ followers can't give their body to just anybody. Christ followers, by God's design, can't just give their body in this way to just anybody. God has very particular... um, uh, designed for that. Now, why is that? First of all, Paul's first reason is we are members of Christ. So what does he mean by that? How is it that I, as a Christ follower, am a member of Christ? Well, somehow, by grace, through faith, when you and I entrust our life to Christ, when we experience conversion, when we are born again, we are mystically unified with Christ in a way that I don't fully understand, I can't fully explain. The text just says it's so. We are unified with Christ in a way that we are called members of Christ. Here's what that means. Everywhere I go, it's amazing, my arm always goes with me. I've never been able to get away from it. Right? It's just a part of me. Your conversion so unified you with Christ that everywhere you go, he goes with you. He will never depart. He never takes a coffee break. He never checks out. He never takes a nap. Literally, everywhere you go, everything you do, you always take Christ with you. You're a member of Christ. That's the first reason that you can't just give your body to anybody. The second reason is sexual activity mingles more than just two bodies. It's not just a physical act. It is by design the physical consummation of a covenant commitment. It unites a man and a woman holistically, certainly physically, but also in every other way. And so to, to engage in sex outside of marriage or outside of God's design is to violate his purposes and his plan. Literally, Paul uses the word join, which is in the original has the idea of gluing something together. So you wouldn't want to do that outside of the intended design that God has for sexual intimacy. There, 
If you did, that's sexual immorality. I like the way Tim Keller describes this. He says it is the literal intermingling of two persons such that either person is something more than what they would be by themselves. It's that significant. Unfortunately, this concept of joining is dismissed based upon emotional grounds. The the thinking is, I can engage in a one-night stand. I can have friends with benefits. I can even go find a prostitute, and it doesn't count because I don't care. That is a tragic thing to even think to begin with, but that's how it's dismissed. Paul would say, listen, no, this joining by God's design, it happens whether you care or not. So think very carefully about where you take your body and to whom you give it. There's no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as inconsequential sex. There's no such thing as recreational sex. As I thought about this, I... uh, um, Man, in my story... There's probably not another subject that is more discouraging um, and nothing that I feel greater regret about than this. And I, you know, some of the most painful conversations I've ever had in my life were with my kids. And to sit down with them and to have to say, I'm going to call you to something more than what I was ever willing to do. Don't do it like me. Now, thankfully, man, like the gospel is so sweet, isn't it? Isn't grace good that God can take our absolute departure from his beautiful design and bring restoration, forgiveness, give us hope? Like that's good stuff, isn't it? I just don't want my kids to have to experience that in the way that I did. Uh, If you're here, I don't know your story, but I'm assuming that in a room with this many people, this may be incredibly discouraging for you. And I just want you to know, today can be a new day. I, I, I Seriously, you guys, I wake up every day and I just say, Lord, thank you that uh, your loving and kindnesses indeed never cease. Your compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the underpinning of God's work despite our brokenness. So I want you to hear all that I'm saying here. I want to speak the truth. I want to do it in love. But I want to say, let's aim higher, right? As As a community of faith, let's go for more. So Paul asks the question, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So take this in. Would you ever take Jesus to a whorehouse? No, never. Paul couldn't say it in any stronger terms. So don't do it with your body. Don't do it with this precious sacred gift that God's given you. And I mean that both physically and in every other way. What you think about, what you look at, where you go. And I understand. I promise you, I understand but we, we can fight this. And that's where Paul ends in verse 
18 with some application. Flee sexual immorality. Flee. That word literally in its kind of grammar form is keep on fleeing. Don't ever stop fleeing. Run for your life. Don't get anywhere near it. I love a story that uh, Dennis Rainey tells in uh, several different places in Passport to Purity. He talks about a, a queen who's interviewing these men who are going to carry her around on her, on her mobile throne, right? And so her interview question is, um, if I'm on my throne and you're carrying me along a mountain pass and there's a steep cliff, how close will you get to the edge? And some of the guys kind of bow up, kind of feeling kind of zesty, like, I'm pretty strong. I think I could get within about a foot. I think you'd be all right. And then there's some other guys, and they're feeling even zestier. And they're like, I'm, I'm strong, but I also have great balance. So I think I could get within six inches, thinking that they would impress the queen. And then there's these other guys. And their response is, in light of how valuable and precious you are to our kingdom, I would actually get as far away from the edge as I could possibly get, just to keep you safe. So who do you think got the job? Right? Same deal with temptation. There's nothing manly or womanly about getting close to the edge. Like just throw up the white flag and run for your life. Get away from it. Don't get near anything that has potential to trip you up. And if you need some motivation, Paul provides that as well. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Literally, that means there's lots of sin out there. And it's not trying to say one sin's worse than another. But the unique thing about sexual immorality is your body, your physical body, actually becomes the instrument of sin. That is what makes it unique from all other forms of sin. So keep that in mind when you're facing temptation. Secondly, Engaging in sexual, sexual immorality violates the most sacred of spaces. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, God Almighty. He could have dwelt anywhere. He could have built any house of any kind. And guess what? He chose to live in you. And so wherever you go, whatever you do, think about what or who are you inviting into the temple? It's a sacred place. It's a precious place. It's a secure place. It's a place where you and I can worship our God. What's our phrase for today? Yan yo, you are not your own. Why is that? Because you have been bought with a price, the precious, precious blood of Christ. And Paul urges us, exhorts us, glorify God in your body. You know, I think about that phrase, you are not your own, and it feels like to me it's protective and it's comforting. Uh, the idea that I am not my own protects me from the dangerous deception of self-reliance and self-sufficiency, that autonomy idea, right? But it's also very comforting because if I am not my own, if I am his, if I've been bought with a price, then knowing that he will never leave me or forsake me, 
knowing that he will always give me what I need to do what he's called me to do. That is incredibly comforting, isn't it? And I want to live in that place and allow God to do the work that needs to be done in me as a result of my dependence upon him. Uh, I want to say a quick word to the guys in here. Um, And again, I I get this. Uh, I, I wish I didn't as well as I do. But um, guys, there are some awesome resources. And this doesn't let the ladies off the hook. But uh, I'm a guy, so I can talk to guys. Um, There are some awesome resources if this is an area of real vulnerability and struggle. And I think for most guys it is. There are some awesome places you can go within our community of faith and get real encouragement, real help, real accountability. Um, our men's group is actually doing a study on sexual temptation this week. So if you're a guy, that'd probably be a great place to go. Um, every week, uh, Samson Society meets. That's an incredible environment for encouragement, accountability. And then our recovery ministry with Phil. Awesome place to come, renew your mind, get some traction, and grow. Grow and change. Beautiful thing. So... I want to encourage you guys to take action on that. How does this relate to, I'll wrap up with this, how does this relate to our series called Wedge? This is one of those areas that lurks beneath the surface and causes more division than we could ever imagine because of its secrecy. So as we think about cultivating unity as a church, Let's just tackle this head on. And I mean full of grace, man. Let's just be all about restoration. But let's shine the light on these struggles that are here. And let's get a plan to move forward, to, to, to live honestly, to tell the truth about ourselves, to come alongside and support each other. Let's preserve our unity by addressing this area with the grace of God. And let's see what God will do with that. I want to invite you as you think about a so what. I I alluded to this earlier. I'll say it again. Like um, wherever you are, whatever kind of story you have, whatever struggles you may be having, like let's let today be a new day. And I love actually that we're just right on the heels of Thanksgiving because there is no better antidote to our struggles than a heart of gratitude. Like when you're full of gratitude for what God has done on your behalf, it's amazing the kind of change it'll bring about in your life. So just take a moment, prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to to just highlight what is it about this contrast of worldly freedom with freedom in Christ. Like where in all of that does God want to do a work in you as we go forward from today? All right? Prayerfully give that some consideration.